You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled, An Unfaithful Bride. Good evening, friends, and welcome to week seven. Tonight, we are going on a journey through a copious amount of scripture. It's truly going to be a bird's eye view. So far, we've been progressing through the Old Testament story, and as a theme comes up, we kind of make that our focus, even if it means looping back several times. So tonight, there will be a little bit of review, but we are going to advance in the storyline. As we move into the era of Israel in the Promised Land, two parallel themes emerge, and that is the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. So that's our focus tonight. Make sure you have your Bible or your app close by, because we're going to be all over the text. How many of you have launched kids out of your home? Metaphorically, of course. We need you older women to stay near. (laughs) Uh, This still feels relatively far off for me. My oldest is 11, but that's really only seven years. I know that time's going to go so quickly. And even though I haven't experienced this yet myself, it reminds me kind of of what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. Now, he's less concerned about them being able to do their own laundry or get groceries, but instead that they know who they are and that their hearts are submitted and soft to the Lord. That's actually what we want most for our kids too, isn't it? Moses is saying, remember who you are, God's chosen people, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He reminds them of their purpose and of the law of the Lord. He exhorts them to obey that they may know the Lord's richest blessings. But remember, God also warned them of the curses that would follow if they disobey. And we're just kind of bracing for it because we know that once they're settled and established, they're not exactly known for obedience or faithfulness. Eventually, this nation will be divided and scattered into exile. And why? Well, the parental answer is because God said so. They disobeyed. God followed through on his word. We could point out a number of specific sins, but ultimately, they did not keep covenant with the Lord. They didn't keep their end of the deal. They just couldn't submit to the Creator King, as none of us can. We really make a mess of things by choosing to govern ourselves. But we also need to add the relational aspect of covenant. It's not just about a king and a subordinate. It's also a picture of a God who loves his people and has committed himself to them with a resolute loyalty. So when the people disobey by running into the arms of pagan women and their gods, they're not just committing treason, they're committing spiritual adultery. To get the full picture, we have to go back to Sinai, where the old covenant began. Would you turn with me to Exodus 24? This is a solemn scene. Moses is inaugurating the covenant between God and Israel. And as we read, I want you to think of it as a wedding. Let's read verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent the young men of the people of Israel who who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now I realize this sounds like the grossest wedding ceremony you've ever heard of, but hear me out. Remember how graphic God's covenant with Abram was in Genesis 15? Innocent animals cut in half to display the seriousness of keeping one's word. And at Sinai, Moses sacrificed an innocent animal as the peace offering, signifying fellowship between the people and God. And then the blood was literally thrown onto the people, showing their identification with the sacrifice that allowed for the fellowship. And in this dialogue of verses 3 and 7, Moses reads the law, reads all the words of the Lord, and the people essentially say, I do. It sounds a lot like till death do us part. In verses 9 through 11, then Moses and the elders of Israel actually sit down to a fellowship meal with God on the mountain. Man, wouldn't you love to know what that wedding feast was like? And let's pick it up here in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Do you feel the weight and gravity of this union? The display at Sinai was terrifying, quite frankly. Yet God was extending himself towards his people in grace and providing a means of relationship. Our understanding of human marriage often doesn't measure up to this. Yet seeing God's heart, just how serious he is about covenant loyalty, should absolutely inform how we view marriage or any other commitment. However, unlike all the ways that human marriage can go wrong, I can't help but think what security there is for the people to be joined to this good and holy God. Now, if only they could keep the conditions of the covenant. God knows how difficult this is going to be for them. Let's look at Deuteronomy 7. We're going to read the first 11 verses here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the command and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God was literally commanding the Israelites to devote the Canaanites to destruction. Anyone else find this a little unsettling? I mean, why would a God who is good and loving command such a thing? Now, if you remember, we ask these same kind of questions in regards to Noah and the flood. And it turns out there are some connective truths. This is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's important to acknowledge so that it's not the elephant in the room. First of all, it's okay if this invokes a negative reaction in you. We shouldn't be nonchalant about a scene like this. But the next step is to bring those negative emotions to the Lord to be informed by truth. This is where many go wrong. Making our own emotions or logic the standard of truth is a dangerous function of autonomy. So quite literally, we're asking, God, show us your heart. This doesn't make sense to me. Renew our minds according to your truth. And just like we said with Noah, God's character is multifaceted. We must live in the tension of following a good and loving God who is also holy and just. Do you know what you can be confident of? God's justice is perfectly righteous. He's never biased. He's never manipulated. He never overpunishes or underpunishes. Did you ever dole out consequences to someone only to realize later you didn't have the whole story? God never makes that mistake because he knows all things. These truths of God must inform our understanding as we read the text. Clearly, the Canaanites were guilty. The wages of sin is death, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sometimes inadvertently think the Canaanites were just going about their lives, happy-go-lucky, and they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is God's land, so you're done here. But that's not the case at all. Remember just how corrupt and perverted humanity had become outside of the Lord's intervention. God told the Israelites that he wasn't doing all this because they were awesome, but because he was on a mission to redeem the entire creation. Those who lived as enemies of God were reaping the consequences of what they had sown. And there's one more thing I want you to see. Flip back to Genesis 15 for a moment. God not only promised Abram a homeland, but he foretold how the events would unfold. Follow along with me here, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's their slavery in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's the Exodus. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what is God doing while the Amorites, the Canaanites, are living in corruption? Waiting. He's waiting. Because that's who he is. Patient and long-suffering, even in his justice. Lastly, we tend to identify with Israel in this scenario because, after all, we as the church are God's holy and chosen people. But let us not forget that we would have had the same destiny as those Canaanites were it not for the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but that humbles me. I don't like that all those people died. But when I understand the weight of our offenses against a holy God, that reframes the narrative. So what can we conclude about God's heart? Certainly we can see his justice. But what about his love for Israel? To go back to that parenting analogy, I mean, who wants their kids to be around negative influences, if you can help it? As the adult whose brain is actually developed, we can see a bigger picture than the child can. And so we do everything we can to protect them from unnecessary influence and temptation. Because there's nothing new under the sun. The ways of darkness will always masquerade as the good life. Like a loving father, God is just like grabbing Israel by the shoulders, looking them square in the eye and saying, You are a chosen people, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now live in that reality. But you probably know how this story goes. Israel did not completely devote the pagans to destruction. And just as God had warned, they were enticed by the Canaanite women and began to intermarry. And what irony that marriage and sex were the gateway drugs that led God's people into spiritual adultery. They had broken covenant with the Lord. We can track this cycle of disobedience over and over as the Israelites become established as a nation. The book of Judges feels like these people are just on a hamster wheel ensnared by their own sin. There was a a graphic in your workbook that looks something like this. So they would begin with a time of rest just a taste of shalom. But just as God had warned them in Deuteronomy, when your bellies get full and you get comfortable, you'll start to forget. And sure enough, they would fall into idolatry, often because of intermarriage. And then, because God is just and doesn't just look the other way, he would send a consequence. An enemy nation would conquer and oppress them. And after being broken by their suffering, they would cry out to God. In his mercy, he would raise up a judge. These judges would lead the people, often as military leaders, lead them in battle and overcome their enemies. Through them, God would bring deliverance. The nation would re-enter a time of rest, of peace. You can literally hold this picture up beside the book of Judges and just watch it happen over and over and over again. And by the end of Judges, things are really bad. And when we read of the atrocities in those last few chapters, we should be struck by the fact that these things are happening within Israel. God's people are not holy and set apart. The corruption of the world has infiltrated their community, proving that they too share the same sinful nature as the pagans. Judges concludes with a sobering statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Autonomy. 
another seeming dead end for God's kingdom. But God's purposes will be accomplished despite human sin. So just as we turn to the page, in a sense, from Babel to Abram, so again we turn that page from Judges to Samuel. 1 Samuel 3, 1 states, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. wonder why. But God appoints Samuel as a prophet to be his mouthpiece to Israel. It doesn't take long into his ministry for the people to demand a king. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 8, and we're going to read verses 4 through 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So in the next several verses, he goes on to explain to them the consequences before the action. Listen, if you want a king, this is what it's going to look like. And if you skim over verses 10 through 18 there, what verb do you see over and over again? He will take. He will take. He will take. Not give, not bring. Take. And then let's read verse 19 through the end of the chapter. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king to rule over us that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make him a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go each man to his city. So why did they want a king? To be like all the other nations. I hope by this time in your study, that's a red flag. <laughs> they want to be like the other nations? That sounds like the opposite of God's intention. And they didn't even try to fake it. This is what gets me. They could have said, oh man, we've made such a mess of things. We really need a king to restore order. There would have at least been some semblance of truth to that. But no, they just want to be like the other nations. They had rejected God's design of theocracy. And even here we see God's character. He didn't have to do this. But it turns out we often have to run all the wrong paths until we agree that his is right. He knew this was coming. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, written long before this time, he gave them guidelines for what a human king should look like. So allow me to summarize. The first point was that God, or I'm sorry, the king was to guard against excessive wealth and wives because it would draw his heart away from wholly following the Lord. Hmm. And second, I love this, the king was to write out his own copy of the law, and I quote, read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law. We need to understand here, kingship is not a bad idea in and of itself. This is part of God's plan after all. But when we consider the role of the king, I want you to think of godly dominion. 
This is the ultimate picture of what ruling and reigning should look like. Do you remember the verbs of dominion? Nurturing, cultivating, protecting, stewarding. A society ruled in godly dominion brings flourishing. The king should be the spitting image of the creator king. Before we jump into all the history, don't forget the bigger context. The kingdom of Israel was meant to be the beginnings of the kingdom of God on earth. God's presence with his people in his place. Israel was to be the example of God's character and the conduit of God's blessing to the world. So, we come to the first king of Israel. Who was it? Yes, Saul. In a couple sentences, uh, Saul was an unqualified, reluctant leader who did not rule in godly dominion. He had a few successes early on, but it didn't take him long to start seeking his own glory. And it didn't take him long to stop listening to the Lord. His autonomy ultimately led to his downfall. And the second king was David. Yes. Turn with me here to 1 Samuel 13. This is when Saul had been rejected and is on his way out. All right, so verses 13 and 14 read, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And I ask you in your homework to start thinking about this phrase, a man after God's own heart. David is notoriously remembered as a far better king than Saul, but we also know he got into some serious sin. I mean, he committed adultery. I would go so far as to even say rape. And then murder on top of that. When we talk about this phrase, uh, a man after God's own heart, the Hebrew concept of heart doesn't just mean your feelings like we might think of it. Instead, it means the inner seat of the will. This is the essence of a person, who they really are, that determines how they think and act. And this phrase could also be translated, a man of God's own choosing. But I love this because both translations apply here. God certainly set his favor upon David, appointing him to be king. Yet David was also known as one who loved and sought the Lord. Now that doesn't mean he was perfect. He sinned in a big, obvious way. But here's the clincher. When David was confronted about his sin, instead of defensiveness and pride, we see humility and repentance. He cast himself on God's mercy, realigning to God's heart. And God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Go ahead and turn there. As I mentioned last week, we get a few more specifics here about God's plan of redemption. It would be a son of David who would establish God's eternal kingdom. Let's read verses 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod, with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David was one of the greatest kings of Israel, but there was still a greater fulfillment to come. Now flip to 1 Chronicles 22, a little bit more to the right, and we're going to read verses 7 through 10. So here we have Solomon, uh, David's son, the third king. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now some of that might sound a little bit like some messianic foreshadowing. But we see here that Solomon is the immediate fulfillment of God's words. He would build a literal house for the Lord, the temple. But here's the play on words from 2 Samuel 7. God would build the house or household of David through his offspring. Ultimately, that will take us to Christ. After the years of warring under King David, the people were finally to have rest under his son Solomon. Finally, we're checking off those boxes. God's presence, just the permanency of the temple now, with his people in his place. And peace, a taste of shalom. Solomon's name even means peace. He was known for his wisdom and for ruling in righteousness and justice. The nation did enjoy peace, prosperity, and abundance under his reign. This has got to be the fulfillment of God's kingdom, right? that sinful cancer continues to rear its ugly head. Turn with me to 1 Kings 11. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel you shall not enter into marriage with them neither shall they with you for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods Solomon clung to these in love he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart for when Solomon was old his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Point in case, right? Just as God had warned in Deuteronomy, the king must guard against excessive wives and riches. Why? Because they would lead his heart astray. Spiritual adultery, a broken covenant. In consequence, God tells Solomon that the kingdom will be torn from him and given to his servant but that this would happen during his son's reign. And just as God had said, during his son Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. 
the northern kingdom called Israel, was ruled by Solomon's servant Jeroboam, who had risen up and rebelled against the household of Solomon. And he actually becomes this iconic figure of all that stands against God. Yet because of his promises to David, God preserved his family line, and Rehoboam ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we enter the long and complex history of the kings of Israel and Judah. This era of history has a lot of detail and a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. But at the end of the day, what can we learn about our God? He was gracious to allow Israel to attempt to this kingship thing, but we read story after story of kings who did not rule in godly dominion. Instead, most of them did what was right in their own eyes. And that meant worshiping other gods, abusing their power, and just rejecting holiness and the law. We need a true and better king. One who would represent God rightly, who would have dominion over creation, who would establish the kingdom in righteousness and justice. Sinful humans just couldn't get it done. But God is faithful. And praise the Lord, his faithfulness is not dependent on ours. He will make good on his promises to Eve, to Abraham, to Israel, to David. What he has purposed, no man can thwart. Interspersed all throughout Israel's history, God sent prophets calling his people to repentance and faithfulness. Because of the nature of their message, these prophets weren't exactly well-liked. We read them with a sense of respect and reverence, but they lived hard lives and often faced public humiliation and rejection. And sprinkled all throughout their words are these undercover prophecies of the Messiah to come. What does this show us of God's heart? I don't know about you, but I see his long-suffering and his patience desiring all to come to repentance. He does not delight in punishing wickedness. So after we work through the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we come to First and Second Chronicles. Go ahead and turn there a while. And if you open up and start to read First Chronicles, you're probably going to be like, well, I already read this, so we're just going to skip over it. It does cover much of the same content that we just went through. However, in the traditional order of the Jewish scriptures, Chronicles actually comes at the very end as a retelling. It's a written summary of their history for the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Where does it begin? With Adam. Right. Now flip to the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. This is chapter 36. This would have been all one unit. In this chapter, we see the pronouncement of Cyrus, the king of Persia. This was during the time of exile. He had Israelites in his land. He was the king that God prompted to send the exiles back home and start rebuilding the temple. Now that's quite the time span from Adam to the return of the exiles. Another unique feature is that Chronicles ends up focusing in on the kingdom of Judah after the division into north and south. And the point being, this is meant to be a compilation of the history and the covenant promises of the messianic line. Remember, it's after the exiles have returned to Jerusalem. They were banking on that kingdom restoration upon returning and rebuilding their place as God's people. But this summary at the end of their scriptures is a reminder of those prophecies that were still left unfulfilled. There must be more to come. 
At the end of this long, tangled history, it has been proven Israel is an unfaithful bride committing spiritual adultery by whoring after the pagan gods. And I hope the more time we spend sitting in the Israelite story, you're feeling the weight of this desperate situation. Mankind didn't just mess up by breaking the covenant, but we're actually incapable of keeping it. How will God's intentions for creation, for his kingdom, ever come to fruition? I'm going to close by reading from Jeremiah 31. You can follow along or just listen as I read this portion of God's words as spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to begin here in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. God's not finished. We know that. He's promised a new covenant in which his people will be betrothed to him in faithfulness forever. But for the Israelites, that seemed only a distant glimmer of hope at this point. They were left waiting, holding on to those covenant promises, longing for the true and better kingdom. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just need to sit in the weight of the bad news so that when the dawning of that new day appears and you send your son into the world to be the deliverer, that good news hits us the way it should. Father, we confess we are, like the Israelites, a sinful people. We are prone to wander, to do what is right in our own eyes, to pursue the the lust of our eyes and our flesh. But God, you are faithful. Where would we be were it not for your faithfulness and grace? Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for making a way to bind us together with you in covenant forever. Father, I pray that these truths would just continue to take root in our hearts. May they affect the way we think and act this week. And God, would you just bind our wandering hearts to thee. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.